Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, nō mai haramai ki te au hurihanga. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, ko klekin kanan tēnei. Near where I'm from in the southwest of Ireland, there's a little village called Aunaskol. It's kind of a blink and you miss it size of a place, but in the winter we'd often pass through because nearby there's this awesome wave that breaks when there's big storms sitting off the coast. And a post-surf tradition developed. After paddling around in the frigid Atlantic, we'd head to the South Pole Inn for hot chips in front of their roaring fire. This pub is full of photos, memorabilia and newspaper clippings. And that's where I first learned about the Endurance Expedition, where a ship bound for Antarctica got packed in by ice in the Weddell Sea, which then forced the epic journey of Sir Ernest Shackleton, New Zealander Frank Worsley and Irishman Tom Crean who sailed to and then trekked across the hazardous, glaciated interior of a remote island called South Georgia. Before that, Tom Crean had also been part of Captain Robert Scott's ill-fated Terra Nova expedition to the South Pole. When he retired from the Navy in 1920 on medical grounds, Tom Crean returned to Aunasgall, where he was from, and, with his wife, opened up this pub, the South Pole Inn. He didn't really talk much about his exploits, so he's often referred to as one of the unsung heroes from this time. But the things he endured on both these expeditions were extraordinary. Here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, the Antarctic Heritage Trust has it as their mission to conserve, share and encourage the spirit of exploration. Today, Peregrine Hyde brings us the story about the Trust's most recent expedition and traces the journey of weather observations from Shackleton's time to today. I'm standing in front of too many king penguins to be able to count. There's a southern black-backed gull flying above us. It's whale bones. And I'm painting everything that I can see because it is just so beautiful. I don't think I've ever seen something as jaw-dropping and mesmerising as this right now. So I thought, why not capture it and paint? But the air is so humid with the thickness of the fog that all my paint is running. <laughs> but I think it adds to it. I feel pretty amazing. That was the voice of Charlie Thomas. Charlie and I have just arrived on the shores of one of the world's most remote and spectacular islands, South Georgia in the far reaches of the southern Atlantic Ocean. We're way out in the middle of nowhere, but it's probably one of the most crowded beaches I've ever been on. We're just surrounded by thousands of penguins marching in these neat single-file lines in every direction. Down by the shore, one of these lines has just dashed out from the surf, but right in front of them is an enormous wall of blubbery boulders, southern elephant seals with many newborn pups, all of them really tightly packed together with very little room between them. But the penguins have somewhere to be, so they begin to tiptoe between these lazing giants. The seals are having none of it. It's a truly wild place, but where exactly is it? 
Spin the globe in your mind until you get to the bottom of South America. Then trace your finger east across the ocean for 2,200 kilometers, and you might just spot a small white island shaped like a fingernail clipping. This is South Georgia, the destination of the Antarctic Heritage Trust's ninth Inspiring Explorers Expedition. Every year, the Antarctic Heritage Trust organizes an expedition to connect young people with the spirit of exploration. You can apply to go, and Charlie and I are among the 22 young New Zealanders lucky enough to have been chosen. This expedition is to commemorate the 100th anniversary of Serena Shackleton's final expedition aboard the Quest. But we travelled in quite a different style. A series of flights got us to the Falkland Islands, where we boarded the ship the Magellan Explorer. And from there it was a further three days sailing, so seven days all up, which sounds like a lot until you think about what it would have been like in Shackleton's day. The goal of our expedition is for us plucky young explorers to get an absolutely mind-blowing, life-changing experience visiting one of Earth's most wild and beautiful islands. From there we aim to share our experiences and learnings with our communities back in Aotearoa. Inspiration is in the name and it's a pretty worthy goal if you ask me. Whilst we're there, we're going to be making many landings ashore, visiting vast penguin colonies and seal rookeries, historic sites, including some of the island's many old rusting whaling stations. We're also going to be learning about the early Antarctic explorers, with a focus on Shackleton's various expeditions. Um, but yeah, I was thinking maybe we split into our we outreach teams after this if we have time. So while we're here, we've got these different projects that we're working on. There's a team filming a documentary while some of us are making educational resources for schools. Charlie and I are part of the arts team working together to create an exhibition of works based on the sights and sounds of South Georgia. There's a team planning to climb a mountain. And then there's the science team who will be collecting rare weather observations in this remote part of the world. Kelly Davenport is an aviation forecaster at Met Service and is spearheading this project. Met Service created a science project for this expedition and it involves two key projects. One, in that we'll be taking weather observations using historical and modern techniques. The second thing that we are doing is taking ocean temperatures around South Georgia. So. Why would a meteorologist from New Zealand be interested in the weather all the way over in South Georgia? Well, it all has to do with how individual weather observations can feed into the big picture. And for meteorologists like Kelly, this big picture is a global weather model. Global weather models are these complex computer simulations that meteorologists use to predict weather patterns across the planet. They take in a vast array of data points from around the world, including wind speeds and temperatures, just like the kind of data that Kelly has set out to collect. But of course, these models are only really as good as the data that they're built on, and for some of the planet's more remote locations, any data that can be taken is really valuable. Think about it like filling in the blanks in the map of the Earth's weather. Forecasting models take in observations from all over the world. They take land observations, observations from the sea, upper ear observations, so that is like your weather balloon, and then it also takes satellite data. So satellite data is the most recent advancement, and now we can get 10-minute satellite data, which is all fed into the global models. 
it is really important that we're taking observations from all over the world especially remote locations like south georgia so places like this they don't have very many observations so they are really really impactful in making sure that the global models are running well and we can work out what our climate what our ocean is doing and how this will affect the weather in the future global models actually initialize so they start from these observations and they apply equations to them to be able to forecast in the future. Taking these observations also honours the legacy of the early Antarctic explorers because many of them made scientific observations on their expeditions to the deep south. Over 100 years ago, Shackleton's Ross Sea Party aboard the Aurora collected an extensive log of the weather conditions they observed, along with when and where they observed it. Peter Fisher is a meteorologist at Met Service. He's also joined us for the journey, and he's brought a fascinating piece of history with him. This really comes back to us finding an amazing document in our archives at Met Service, and it was the actual logbook taken from the Aurora. This logbook included all of the weather observations that the expedition team members made on their way down from Melbourne, they were taking readings every four hours, and we thought, wouldn't it be amazing for us to do the same? And what does it read there, Sam? I've got a 4.0. 4.0, you say, with some confidence. And you're absolutely spot on. We had historical weather equipment that we took down to South Georgia, and our team members would analyse the sky and look at the weather instruments to come up with a weather report that was very, very similar to the ways in which Shackleton's team members did it 100 years ago. It's like a 2.6. That's exactly what I would have said as well. On this trip, we took with us a marine screen, which is a modified Stevenson screen, the traditional way, our traditional housing for thermometers. It's louvered so that it protects the thermometers from the wind and also from the shade of the shade from the sun. Within this box we've got a what's called a dry bulb and a wet bulb thermometer, traditional just a standard thermometer. One of these thermometers has a muslin and a wick that goes down to a, a reservoir and so water is fed up that wick into the muslin uh, surrounding the bulb. As that water evaporates it cools the bulb and reduces the temperature of that thermometer. So when you combine or compare both temperatures from the dry bulb thermometer and the one that's got the muslin around it, called the wet bulb thermometer, the difference is an indication of the, um, the moisture or the saturation levels of the air. And we use tables to determine the dew point, uh, the temperature at which you cool the air for saturation to occur, and the relative humidity. So exactly, again, the same way as Shackleton's team would have um, carried those out. So once we had our temperatures, we'd move on to um, the cloud classifications. What type of clouds did we have? How high were they? How much cloud did we have out there? How much of the sky was covered in cloud? And once we had that covered, we would uh, look at the visibility. How far could we see? Was the clear? Was the eye? Re was the was the sky really clear, or was it um, hazy or, or misty or even foggy as it was for two or three days running? Then we'd move into our atmospheric pressure and we'd use a barometer to 
to measure the atmospheric pressure and would make some corrections so that we'd end up with a, what's called a sea level or mean sea level pressure. So while the barometer was more modern than the one that the Shackleton, Shackleton team, uh, the, their crew members would have used, they would have probably used a mercury-based barometer, which we weren't able to travel with. Um, we used a, still a vintage barometer, so we're still, we're still nodding in the direction of uh, history. Um, to generate these uh, pressure values and we shared that job around so all, all of the team members and our science team had a, had a go at, uh, at making these weather reports which was fantastic because most of them even though they knew a few cloud types some of them knew quite a few cloud types um, we were able to put that in context and bring it all together so they could use that information and that knowledge to generate a real live weather report that we were comfortable with to the point we could put it into our logbook and it becomes part of our weather history. And that's pretty well it. You've now done a plain language synoptic report. Excellent. As the Magellan Explorer cruises around the stunning shores of South Georgia, some members of our team are keeping a particularly wary eye on the sky. Sam West and Millie Mannering are two members of the Inspiring Explorers climbing team. They've come to South Georgia with the goal of summiting Mount Worsley in the island's isolated interior. This peak is named for Shackleton's Akororo-born captain and legendary navigator Frank Worsley. If the team is successful, they'll be the first New Zealanders to stand on its summit. South Georgia is exceptionally mountainous, with some 160 glaciers riddled with deep crevices. The first known crossing of the interior was by Shackleton, Crean and Worsley in their desperate attempt to reach Stromness whaling station in 1916. After their ship the Endurance got trapped and then crushed by ice, Shackleton's 1916 expedition had become all about survival, so it's not as if they had planned to make this trip. They had no sleeping bags, no tents, and there wasn't a map in the world that existed yet that could have helped them navigate the interior. They had very little time for preparation and had no advance forecast of the conditions ahead of them. Unlike Shackleton's improvised crossing, the Mount Worsley team has spent months preparing. Yet, even with all their planning, the weather still calls the shots, so they rely heavily on up-to-date weather forecasts to guide their journey. When Shackleton was on his expedition, they literally had, you know, the temperature, they might have had a barometer, and they would have had a compass so they could tell which way the wind was coming from they could tell how warm or cold it was and if the pressure was decreasing or increasing so maybe a storm was coming in or uh, some high pressure was coming but that's all they had and that really was just telling them what the conditions were at the time whereas now when we go into the mountains the weather is everything and you check the weather over and over again until you've got a really solid idea of what it's doing because that informs where you can go safely and what you should be taking and how long you can go for when you can summit. It's not just weather at the time, it's also being able to build up a picture of what's happened in the past. So the weather influences the snowpack, all of the conditions in the mountains and our ability to have that information so ready and accessible means that we really can understand and build a picture of those conditions and assess the risk for travelling through the mountains. Unfortunately, for Sam, Millie and the rest of the Mount Worsley team, the weather had the last word and their ascent was called off. One of the most frustrating things about the conditions that we experienced down there was 
high temperatures and high precipitation. So the precipitation that we were getting was as rain, not as snow. And this immediately was a big safety concern for our group because uh, we really didn't want to start at the beginning of a potentially four day trip being super wet. It's a lot easier to stay warm and dry when the temperature is cold because then you're getting snow falling instead of rain. So it's just a lot easier to look after yourself. Both of them being nature frothers though, the disappointment didn't last long. Look how beautiful this is! This is called Macrocystis periphera. Beautiful species of seaweed. So at the bottom, it's on the ground with this big fat... Though we're channeling the spirit of Shackleton, the safety of our modern expeditions, like the Mount Worsley climbing teams, hinges on access to accurate, up-to-date weather forecasts. This modern forecasting is a game changer. It allows us to make informed decisions, to anticipate weather challenges, and it ensures the well-being of everyone involved. Yeah, big change in pressure is so, six hexapascals in six hours. That's quite it's a luxury Shackleton never had, and allows us to blend all that thrill of exploration with a pretty nice assurance of safety. All of this, of course, is thanks to some really significant advances in meteorology. Every day aboard the Magellan Explorer, Kelly and her team load up onto one of the ship's small Zodiac landing vessels to deploy a state-of-the-art floating weather station. This spot-a-wave boy captures that rare and impactful data which feeds into the global weather models, improving the accuracy of forecasting worldwide. <laughs> I know the feeling. There's just no way around it, isn't it? Really heavy, you know? 50 kilo anchor on the bottom, we had to load this wave boy up that had this big anchor attached. The chain and anchor would have been 20, 30 kgs. Get it on the Zodiac, there were three of us at a time, and boost out and we had to find somewhere that was between 25 and 35 meters of depth. We used a little sonar and we put it into the water to see how deep the water was. So when we put the wave boy up, we put the anchor first, followed by the chain, and then we had a long plastic tube. Attached, we had ocean temperature sensors, one that sat near the bottom of the ocean and the other just below the surface. Attached to that, we had the wave boy, and this is a really awesome piece of kit. It uses the rocking motion of the waves to be able to work out what way the wind is coming from, how strong, and it takes really high quality wave data and it also takes pressure. So a lot of the similar things that the historic team, they were looking at. It has solar panels so it can stay out there for as long as it needs and it has satellite connections. So as we were taking these observations, it was able to throw it up and appear on the website, which we have all the data now from it. Oh, We were so, so lucky with the crew that we had on board. The weather conditions we were going out in were very variable. Some days it was calm and we were able to even go out at night we were cruising out from the ship in the Zodiac into basically an abyss and we could hear the elephant seals roaring from the land and the king penguins 
we even saw phosphorescence coming off the zodiac which was super awesome other times where the crew were super super helpful was in times where there was strong wind big swell the crew were so good at driving the zodiacs to get us into the place that we needed to go that we were able to put the wave boy out and get so many observations. We were really, really lucky with the amount of data that we captured. I'm really looking forward to analyzing it and creating a story about our trip, about the wind and wave conditions around South Georgia. By collecting these rare weather observations today, Kelly and her team are building upon the foundations of knowledge which were laid down by those early Antarctic explorers just over a century ago. It's Pretty fascinating to think that maybe in a hundred years, today's data could be a vital reference for meteorologists looking to understand how weather patterns have changed. Speaking of which, what might the next 100 years hold for these wild and remote places? With climate change already reshaping our world, the outlook unfortunately doesn't look too promising. When I first arrived on South Georgia and I saw the animals, I cried because it was unbelievably surreal. It was beautiful, but I also cried for them because they might not have an environment that they will be able to live in in the future. Here's Peter Fisher again. Prior to leaving New Zealand and heading over to South Georgia, we requested from one of our partner companies, Klim Systems, to write a summary climate change risk assessment report to give us a heads up of the sorts of issues and problems that were facing South Georgia. We read this report and were um, uh, not surprised, but saddened, if, if you like, by the messages that was given as a result of this analysis. And the future is not that bright for these amazing animals and um, habitats of South Georgia. For those of us who have seen the majesty of South Georgia firsthand, this is a really bitter pill to swallow. Virtually every site that we visit seems to be teeming with wildlife. On our landing at St Andrews Bay, we visit a vast colony of 65,000 king penguins. But these vast gatherings of animals are tremendously sensitive to human activity. 100 years ago, it's unlikely that any members of Shackleton's expedition would have seen any Antarctic fur seals on South Georgia. They had been hunted to the brink of extinction. But today they number in the millions. In Shackleton's time, the settlements on the island were bustling in industrial whaling stations, the snow beneath them stained red with blood and the air reeking of blubber and offal. Today, the machinery lies rusting and dormant, and whale populations are on the rebound. In the 20th century, introduced rats and reindeer caused many problems for ground-nesting birds and native vegetation. But these invasive mammals had now been eradicated. When South Georgia was declared free of rats in 2018, it was the largest successful rodent eradication program ever. So, if South Georgia is a barometer for change, just what might we make of it? Jenny Song is a data scientist, a climate activist, and one of the members of the Inspiring Explorers science team. South Georgia is just such a great example of how when humans come together and decide to protect a place, 
the ecosystems can really bounce back. Very recently, in the last few decades actually, governments and with the urging of activists and environmentalists all around the world, so normal people like people listening here, they put in great policies and biosecurity measures and we've now witnessed the fruits of that where there are millions and millions of seabirds breeding here, the beaches are awash with elephant seals and fur seals frolicking around and so now with this threat of climate change how can we do the same by deciding to work collectively towards a climate that does support a rich ecosystem everywhere, including in these incredibly remote and special places like South Georgia. The creeping impacts of the climate crisis tend to be pretty difficult for us to directly experience. But this wasn't actually the case for us on our expedition. Almost exactly from the moment that South Georgia appeared on the horizon, we found ourselves surrounded by enormous icebergs. We ended up seeing numerous icebergs, actually far more than even the crew had seen on a given tour. And so that was pretty spectacular visually and amazing to see so many different types of icebergs just floating past so close to the ship. But on the other hand, it was clearly a sign that something's changing and quite dramatically as well. The icebergs that we saw were all tiny fragments of a much larger mothership and that mothership was Iceberg A76A. Just a few months before our expedition, A76A was the world's largest floating iceberg, and it had arrived in the shallower waters to the south of South Georgia after a long journey north from Antarctica. At this time, its surface area was four times the size of Auckland. Once it hit the shallower waters, it started to break apart, scattering huge chunks of ice all around, and by the time that we arrived in South Georgia, these pieces had completely surrounded the island. So pretty much every day when we looked out the window, we could see icebergs. Peter notes that things were a little bit different for the crew aboard the Aurora over a century ago. I was really interested to see when Shackleton's team first saw icebergs as they were heading on their way south, because in the weather report, logbook there's a section to put a plain language remark of anything interesting you see out there and icebergs of course are one of those and we saw icebergs a lot earlier than they did in Shackleton's era I think he first saw them when he's well into his 60 60 degrees south whereas we were 53 54 south and we started seeing icebergs um, and we were making reports at a roughly about the same time of year I think it was so it'll be really interesting to compare the reports that we made versus the reports that were made by Shackleton's team 100 years ago to see what other differences there were. Like all journeys, ours is coming to an end. But we've got one more place to visit. After that epic feat of survival crossing the interior on foot, Shackleton returned to South Georgia in 1922. This time he was in the expedition vessel The Quest, bound for Antarctica, Late one night, while the ship was docked in Gripviken, the ship doctor was called to Shackleton's cabin to find the man known endearingly by his men as the boss on his deathbed, brought down by a heart attack. But Shackleton would embark on one final journey. A dear friend would accompany his body all the way back to Uruguay, where they received a request from Lady Emily Shackleton. Take him back to South Georgia and bury him where he belongs, in the South. Just over a century later, the members of the Antarctic Heritage Trust's ninth Inspiring Explorers Expedition are gathered at Shackleton's grave. 
Historian Tennessee Blackmore has some thoughts to share in this tender moment. I often think what he would think of seeing you here and those who came before you to make this great pilgrimage to pay our respects to the fine Ernest Henry Shackleton. A hundred years since his last expedition and his untimely... As we visit the final resting place of the great explorer in the graveyard at Gritvikin, a member of Kelly's team makes the following observation. Altostratus invading the sky, icebergs at cove entrance. It seems like there is some bad weather approaching, but it isn't here just yet, which is just as well for our excitable mountaineers. They've finally been given the go-ahead to make an ascent up Mount Hodges, which towers above the old rusting whaling station. We spot them way up on the ridgeline from Shackleton's grave. I was extra cool being up there because we saw these huge mountains in the interior of South Georgia, and we watched this weather system come through pretty quickly, and these dark stormy clouds started to envelop these high peaks, and we really started to feel the wind build. So it was pretty awesome to actually get out there and feel the elements and have a sneak peek into the adventure that South Georgia holds. It was pretty special to be able to ski there, put some turns in above the bay, which was filled with icebergs, and then ski down and finish right next to the cemetery where Shackleton's grave was and kind of finish the day with toasting the boss. And to you all and to your inspiring explorers, may this simply be the beginning of our great adventure to our own great prizes. On this earth, I toast now, the boss. The boss. Thanks to Peregrine Hyde, who put together this story. He spoke to Kelly Davenport and Peter Fisher of Met Service, and to Charlie Thomas, Sam West, Millie Mannering, and Jenny Sang, all part of the Antarctic Heritage Trust's ninth inspiring explorer expedition to South Georgia. This episode was produced by Peregrine Hyde, with help from me, Claire Cannon, and Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by William Saunders, and Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Our webpage is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld, where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, and if you've got feedback, drop us an email at ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz. Te nākwe i mai. Thanks so much for listening. Ko Clerk and Canon Have a great week. Kia pai, te wiki.